Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner, I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And uh, we turn now um, back to that reading from Luke chapter 19. If you've closed your Bibles, it's on page 1053 of the Pew Bibles. And um, I'll just pray for us again as we turn back to God's Word. Father, we, we just sang these words, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, this our song shall ever be. And in our best moments, I'm sure that is our heart's cry. And yet we know that so often our hearts are far from that clarity of conviction and motivation. Uh, We pray tonight that as we look again at your word that you would be so at work in us that uh, you would be changing us by your powerful Holy Spirit to make us a people who increasingly uh, can indeed say all for Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are lots of different kinds of waiting Think of a child who's waiting for their birthday and uh, they count down from 100 days, 30 days, 10 days until the birthday. Uh, That's uh, one kind of waiting, kind of um, uh, anticipation. Uh, There's a a kind of waiting that many of us have done recently, which is waiting for exam results. That's sort of a a nervous anticipation for what lies ahead. Uh, There'll be people here who um, tomorrow morning will be waiting for a bus, feeling bored, or at a set of traffic lights, feeling impatient. That's a different kind of waiting. Or maybe some of us over the summer holidays have been on a, 
a wonderful break somewhere exotic, perhaps on a, on a lovely beach, and we've been three days into a summer holiday with three days left, and it suddenly hits us that we're halfway through. And as we're lying there in bliss on the beach, we try to savor every second of that holiday, trying to make time slow down before the end of the holiday. That's another kind of waiting. There are lots of different kinds of waiting. And tonight, we begin a new series in Luke's Gospel. We, we follow on, in fact, from a series we did this time last year and in this part of Luke's Gospel. We come to Luke chapter 19. And tonight, our text is all about waiting. Except this time, unlike birthdays or buses, tonight is about waiting for the most important event in our lives and in the history of the entire world. Whether we realize it or not, there is a moment coming in the future. It could be tonight, it could be in a thousand years. There is a moment coming when the one true global king will return to rule over this entire world forever. His return will change everything about our lives and this world. And the big question for each one of us here tonight is this. How are we waiting for that moment? Ever since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been slowly but surely heading towards Jerusalem and excitement has been building. He's been performing miracles of great power, healing sick, raising dead people to life, teaching with extraordinary authority. And just before our reading in Luke chapter 19, he had an encounter with little Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' world was completely turned upside down by meeting Jesus. And so look at how our reading begins, verse 11. While they, the crowd, were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. It's an understandable conclusion from the people. Surely Jesus will be crowned king of the Jews in the capital city of the Jews, Jerusalem. You can imagine the buzz rippling through the crowds. Here is the moment at last. We have a king to change our world. The crowd have the right man, but the wrong mission. The only crown that Jesus will wear in Jerusalem is a crown of thorns as he dies on a Roman cross. The kingdom of God is not going to appear at once, certainly not the way the crowds expected it to. And so Jesus tells a parable to show his people how we should be waiting during the delay until he returns and his kingdom is made known. Verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. The point is clear. Jesus is the nobleman. He is about to go on a journey to a distant country. He's about to um, receive his kingdom in glory but his journey is one to the cross and then to heaven to be with his father where he will be made king of the world. And then one day he will return to this earth in all his glory to rule over the world. But not yet. There will be a delay. We live now in that delayed moment. And in this parable, Jesus helps us to understand how we, his people, should live in that delay we see, I think, three different kinds of waiting in our parable. And as we look at these three, we would do well to examine our own hearts to see which kind of waiting best matches our lives. 
Well, here's the first bunch of people we meet in the parable, uh, those who are waiting, and here's our first heading, rebellious subjects. Look at verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Rebellious subjects. Probably this applied in the first instance to the Jews who rejected Jesus, who mocked Jesus for claiming to be king. But of course, that same attitude is alive and well today in the world around us. Sometimes subtly, sometimes in very obvious ways, people around us today mock Jesus and they reject the thought that he has any authority over them in any area of life. I'm aware that this coming week is a week of um, new beginnings for many people, back to school, perhaps back to work after a break. And we will find ourselves in a world, in a classroom, in our office, in the neighborhoods, in a world surrounded by people who think very little of the kingship of Jesus. Whether explicitly or implicitly, they have very little time for the thought that there's a king called Jesus who rules over them. They don't want the world to be like that. And so people around us tomorrow, this week, when it comes to how they run their lives, the decisions they make, the people they sleep with, how they spend their time or money, how they relate to their family, in every single area of life, they don't want Jesus to be king over them. Often in life, it doesn't really matter if we don't like the person in charge. Politicians might be the flavor of the month for a time, but if after a while we get a bit bored of their policies that we want to change, well, the next time there's an election, we just vote for someone different. If we don't like the boss in the office, we can always leave. It may not be easy, but we can always change. But when it comes to this king in Luke chapter 19, if we decide to rebel against his leadership, then the results are devastating, as we will see. Notice the problem the subjects had with the king was not a a philosophical question about whether it was right or wrong to have a monarch over them. Uh, It wasn't a question about whether or not there was a king, a a scientific investigation into the evidence. Is there a king or is there not? the, The question that they had, the problem they had with the king is a problem of the will, Verse 14, we don't want this man to be our king. Have we found this to be the case? Our friends, family, colleagues, when they push back against the kingship of Jesus, saying he has no right to tell me how to live my life. So often when we push them, asking them, why is that the case? So often their answer, when it comes to it, isn't really about questions of of proof or evidence, It boils down so often to the question of will. I just don't want him to be my king. I don't want to be accountable. I don't want there to be a king that rules over the universe. I think of one person I spoke to recently, not part of the church family here. I invited him to come along some Sunday to to pop in to see what we did here on a Sunday. They politely declined Uh, They explained that they had a particular habit on a Sunday morning and they had no intention of giving up that habit to come and hear about Jesus. They were very polite, very respectable, pleasant to chat to, but very little time for King Jesus. And the real shock of this parable is what happens to people who persist in pushing King Jesus away. 
Glance forward to what happens when the king returns towards the end, verse 27. Jesus speaks as the king. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Some of the the most shocking words, I think, in the New Testament from the very lips of Jesus. See, we might be a respectable person in the office. We might give to charity and recycle our paper and keep a rein on our tongue and not gossip about people, not backstab others. But when it comes to our eternal future, the crucial question comes, it boils down to our attitude towards King Jesus. There's no neutral response, verse 15. Whether we like it or not, he has been made king of the universe. He will return. And there is a very sober warning here about what will happen to those who persist for a lifetime in rejecting him. Rebellious subjects, that's one way to wait for the return of the king. Next, here's our second point, the second group, reliable servants. Before the nobleman leaves, verse 13, back over the page, we read, he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Well, how do the servants get on? I guess we know the story well. The king returns and he calls the servants in verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Now, this is a really good effort from the first servant. Remember back in Jesus' day, there was no stock market. You couldn't just invest your money into a portfolio of shares and sit back and check the updates every couple of weeks to see how things were getting on. No, to, to increase one to ten would have involved lots of hard work, being an entrepreneur, maybe starting a fishing business, hiring some people, getting some nets in, a boat, investing in the hardware, long hours out on the sea at night, making the investment work, being wise with the funds, reinvesting it into more boats, more people, and eventually after grafting and hard work, one has become 10. It's a great effort from this first servant. What about the second one, verse 18? The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. The master's response is again positive, not as glowing as the first one. Uh, Not well done, not ten cities, but, but five. The master rewards the first two servants in line with their productivity and reliability. Reliable servants. Now, commentators love to debate uh, what we should understand by this minor that the king gives to his servants. Uh, We know it's the equivalent of about three months' salary. So uh, the nobleman hasn't given his servants kind of a a lottery prize. It's not a kind of millions, but it is significant, three months' salary. I think the miners represent a share in the nobleman's estate, part of the kingdom. I think they represent anything that God gives his people that we can use to grow his kingdom. It it certainly includes the gospel, for that's how people are welcomed into the kingdom. It must include that, but it also includes, I think, our gifts, our personalities, our opportunities, our time, our passions, our joys. God has entrusted to each one of us the opportunity, the potential to grow his kingdom in the delay. 
we can all be involved. At the end of our meeting tonight, we can be involved by building one another up as we speak about Christ to one another. It can happen as we serve tea and coffee, as we operate the sound desk, as we welcome a newcomer that Chris was talking about earlier on, as we follow someone up who's had a rough week. It can happen tomorrow in the office as we care for a colleague or work hard under pressure or speak about Christ with those who don't yet know him. It can happen on Monday evening as we come back perhaps to speak to a friend or with family members. As we love and serve Christ, we can build his kingdom in lots of different ways. It happened last Wednesday night as a number of people gathered to cut grass in the churchyard with some strimmers because they love Jesus and want to serve his people. It'll happen this coming Wednesday as others gather to pray. Lots of ways that God has given his people to invest in and grow his kingdom until the king returns. I guess the application is almost limitless. I mean, looking around the room tonight, there's so many people here with different gifts and opportunities But the same challenge, the same call to be about the master's business of growing his estate whilst he's away. Reliable servants. It's an easy thing to say, isn't it? Oh, well, we must um, make the most of what God has given us. But in my experience, it's much harder tomorrow morning to live it out. And I think this parable gives us some wonderful uh, ways of thinking about this delay that will help us be reliable servants until the master returns. Here's one really helpful thought, I think. Don't confuse delay with cancellation. Some years ago, I was doing some DIY work in the house, and uh, I had to order some parts from a well-known DIY store, and I was told that the parts would arrive at the house um, one Friday between 9 and 1. And so I made sure that I cleared my diary and I was in the house between nine and one. And at nine, I I waited. At 10, I waited. At 11, I waited. At 12, I waited. And by two o'clock, I was still waiting and no delivery from the DIY store. And by three o'clock, I realized that delay had become cancellation. I rang them up and um, they apologized. They realized actually the pot wasn't in store at all and there was never going to be a delivery. And uh, they confirmed it wasn't delay It was cancellation. And as we wait for Christ to return, I think as we wait, um, as, as as the years go by and we wait longer and longer, the longer we wait, the more it feels like what's happened is cancellation, not delay. People keep saying, well, Christ can return any moment, but he doesn't. And then we find it hard to imagine that he might actually come back one day. And the more we think that way, the more we start to wonder wouldn't quite say it this way, but we wonder, has it actually been a cancellation, not a delay? At the same time, we are bombarded by a whole host of voices in the world around us that come from people who are rebelling against the king, telling us to live life now in the present, because now is as good as it gets. From the internet, social media, blogs, newspapers, from every direction. I, I heard recently that um, the Royal Mail delivers, uh, half of its deliveries are junk mail adverts. And uh, just flicking through things that I've received just in the last couple of weeks, I received adverts through the mail for better broadband, better TV channels, better clothes, better double glazing, a better kitchen, better holidays, even a better garden. Nothing wrong with having better things in those areas. But do you see the subtle message from the world around us? The goal of life is to make this present life as good as possible because this is all there is. 
And if we are wondering in the back of our minds, perhaps this promise of return has actually been cancellation. And the world is saying to us over here, just live for the present. It's as good as it gets. It's very hard as Christians to urgently, daily live for the return of the master. But this parable helps us to remember that the return is delayed, but it is not canceled. The king will return. And so we should be reliable servants. That's one big help, I think, from this parable. Here's another one. Remember the master's reward. Verse 17, well done, my good servant, his master replies. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. Which is quite a remarkable reward. The, the first master has made three months salary into 30 months salary, which is a significant amount of money. But then his master gives him 10 cities which I take it is worth far more than 30 months' salary of one person. It's an incredibly generous reward out of all proportion to what the servant has done. The master's reward. I checked Google this week, and apparently the biggest company in the world at the moment in terms of number of people employed is Walmart. And at latest count, they employ 2.3 million employees. And the CEO of Walmart is a, is a Douglas McMillan. Um, and I was trying to work out if Douglas McMillan tried to spend just five minutes with each one of his 2.3 million employees, how long would it take Douglas to get around all the employees? And um, on a quick calculation, five minutes of chatting, if he works 12 hours a day, seven days a week with no holidays, it'll take him 44 years to have a five-minute conversation. And I think at times we can have that view of our king in heaven. You know, he's, got, he's got millions of Christians busy serving him, not just now, but think of through all the ages. And um, with the best will in the world, how does he actually know what we're doing? There's so many of us busy working away. Does he actually care? Does he notice what we're doing? Does he actually understand what our life is like in the context we're working in and all the decisions we've made and the tears we've wept over serving him in this hard world? Does he, does he care? Does he know? This parable tells us the master does know. Every single person here tonight, every single Christian through all the ages, he recognizes and appreciates and rewards every act done to grow his kingdom. J.C. Ryle put it this way, the Lord's servant will discover to his amazement that his master's eye saw more beauty in his efforts to please him than he ever saw himself. He will find that every hour spent in Christ's service and every word spoken on Christ's behalf has been written in a book of remembrance. This is wonderful news. We have a master who notices our attempts to serve him, even if they are weak and fumbling and at times with mixed motives and half-hearted and we start and we don't finish. He sees our efforts to be reliable servants and one day when he returns, he will reward our efforts generously for he is a kind king. Now, I know some of us feel a bit awkward when we start talking about the idea of God rewarding his servants. It sounds a bit mercenary or a bit selfish for us to be spurred on now in the present with the thought of receiving some large reward in the future. And so it kind of, we sort of distance ourselves from that way of thinking. And yet the Bible is full of reminders that our heavenly father rewards his people. 
We are told to store up treasures for ourselves, not in this earth where rust and moth destroy, but in heaven. It helps, I think, to remember that this is not salvation by works, as if if we're good enough employees for the king, then he'll accept us. That's not at all what is happening in Luke 19. It all begins with a free gift from the master to his people. And in the new creation, when we are free from sin and we are no longer greedy or competitive, where we are not prone to idolize the reward at the expense of the one who gives the reward, then I take it that in the new creation, this reward from my heavenly Father will be received correctly with joy. We will praise and thank him for it without there being any friction or divisiveness. I don't know how it'll work, but it is a good thing. And it is right for us now to be thrilled by the thought of our Heavenly Father rewarding us in the future. We don't know what the reward will be like. In this parable, it's cities. Um, It may be that we'll be given more responsibility in the new creation. We don't know. But we do know that it'll be far beyond what we deserve from our generous king as he returns. Reliable servants, that's the call for us tonight. Finally, here's our third uh, way of waiting, the reluctant slave. I'm not sure reluctant is quite the right word, but it works well with the other two R's. So a reluctant slave, verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you do not put in and reap what you do not sow. Now some of us might feel a bit sorry for this uh, final uh, servant, a reluctant slave, because if we've ever been in a context where, uh, in a classroom with a teacher or in the workplace where there's a, a bully of a, a boss, it is a scary thing to tiptoe on eggshells around someone with a fiery temper who goes off the handle at you if you make the smallest mistake. And so we might feel for this uh, reluctant slave because he's got a terrible, cruel master. He doesn't want to make a mistake, and so he does nothing. He's paralyzed by fear. But as we look at the details more closely, we discover that this final servant, the reluctant slave, doesn't know the master at all. Because his answer makes no sense. And his lack of logic is exposed by the king. Look at verse 22. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servants. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? You see what the master is saying? You didn't even have to do anything. If you were scared of me, all you had to do was to put it into someone else's hands on deposit and then it would have earned interest. If you were really scared of me, you would have done that. But you see, the master is exposing this servant's heart. It's not a question of being scared of the master because he's a harsh master. In fact, he's not a harsh master. He's not tight and um, reaping where he hasn't sown. He's a generous master. He gives freely to his servants. He's a kind, loving master. This third servant has got it all wrong. He doesn't know the king at all. Now again, there is much debate about the fate of this final reluctant slave. 
He is uh, he's, he's stripped of his minor. Uh, he's taken away from him and given to those who have. And there's discussion about what that represents. I mean, is this someone who was a Christian but then has lost their salvation? Or are they a Christian but they've, sort of, they've been saved but, but only just? Or, or how do we understand it? Well, we're not actually told what happens to this final reluctant slave. But I think we're not told because this parable is not trying to help us know the very least we can do to serve the Lord and still get away with it. That's not the point of it at all. The point of this parable is to make us servants who joyfully, willingly, freely, enduringly give ourselves to the service of our loving king before he returns. And so we should look at this final reluctant slave and think, that's just the wrong way to go about it altogether. We've got a wonderful, generous king who rewards um, in an extraordinarily generous way. And so why wouldn't we want to serve him with all that we have? But there may be some here tonight who acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Uh, perhaps we uh, openly talk about wanting to follow him, but when we look at the diary, when we look at where the best of our energy and our planning and our emotional capital is spent, we realize that serving the king doesn't really feature at all in our lives. I think there is a challenge here, if that is us, to take heed, to reassess how we're living our lives. And rather than asking the question, what is the least I can do and get away with it? Rather think, what is the best way I can serve my king with the gifts and abilities he's given me? I'm aware though that as I say that, and I think for some of us we need to hear that challenge, there'll be others here tonight, perhaps with a more tender conscience and you hear me speaking and you think, oh no, what if I am that person? What if I'm, I'm not serving enough? And what if it means that when the king returns, I'll get a very bad reception? And what if, if worse comes to worse, I won't be welcomed at all? I don't think this parable is here to make genuine Christians doubt their salvation. Remember in the context of Luke's gospel, we saw this last time we were in Luke's gospel, back in, um, over the page in uh, Luke 18, Jesus says that the one criteria we need to enter the kingdom of God is simply to be like little children, to come stumbling forward to the king, empty-handed, helpless, with nothing to bring. And he welcomes us in freely, generously. That's the one criteria. And so tonight, if this does make you feel uncomfortable, wondering if you've done enough, can I encourage you to not look at what you've done, but to look at the generous king who welcomes anyone in with open arms. And the right response tonight is, if you're not sure, is to cry out for help. Like a little child who needs help from their dads, cry out to King Jesus, and he rescues anyone who cries to him. Christ will return. That is not in doubt. But the question for us tonight is, how are we waiting? Even though it will be hard work, and even though the wait might feel almost unbearable at times, when King Jesus returns, we will not regret a single drop of sweat or a tear shed in the service of our King. 
it will all be worth it. Let's pray. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, this our song shall ever be. Father, we want that to be our song. We want that to be the melody of our week. Please help us. Help us to be reliable servants who exhaust ourselves joyfully, happily in the service of our King. Father, please help us to view this moment in time, this delay until your king returns, help us to view it with right eyes. Help us not to believe the world around us that this now is the best it'll be. Help us to believe that there will be a day in the future when we see our glorious king face to face and it'll be so worth it then. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.